Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, people of all ages, welcome back to the Sticky Floors podcast. I am one of your hosts, CJ. I am joined by Mr. Will. And tonight we are talking about Minority Report. So (laughs) for everybody that is joining us now, we are out of the Black History Month movies. And uh, I got to tell you, it is a joy to listen to or to watch a movie that I didn't feel emotionally attached to. Because look, this is like, this is easy, man. The Black History Month joints, I was getting text messages from people talking about, what you mean four stars from Malcolm X? Like, people were mad. I'm getting threats and everything. Like, it's it's rough out here, man. I'm like, let me talk about these regular movies, man, with Tom Cruise and everything where it's safe. So this is, that's what we're doing. We're doing Minority Report tonight, man. Mr. Will, first of all, how are you doing tonight? How are you doing tonight? Oh, man, I'm doing real well. How are you, CJ? What's going I'm on good. with you, man? I'm good, man. I feel safe because we're talking about this joint. <laughs> so <laughs> why don't you give the people a quick overview of Minority Report, and then we can we can do what we do with it. For those that were uh, texting to call him a man, CJ, just understand he was putting on his movie critic hat. It had nothing to do with about <laughs> indictment of black people and the uh, social conditions surrounding uh, some of the things that uh, that ail us, man. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but uh, back on target, uh, we're dealing with Minority Port. And uh, this is a cinematic version of the age-long debate of what came first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, the line spoken by uh, Max Van Sendow's uh, character, Lamar Burgess, rest in power, uh, we don't choose the things we believe in. They choose us, capsulizes this notion of free will versus predetermination. One of the main themes in this film is the fact that things are already determined and this is such a thing as a free will existed. Yeah. And you know what's great about this, amazing about this movie and the idea of like precognition is there's so much technology that's in this movie that mm-hmm. foreshadowed what we have right now. Like, yeah, that whole thing with the screens and moving them with the hand, like that is what you get with the whole metaverse, Apple Vision yeah. Pro thing, the idea of um the electric cars. That's like, of course, we got that now. How about how about that the electric car can drive you where it wants to wants you to go when you don't want to go yeah. there? That's that's crazy. Um, the screens that tailor the messages for you, like obviously they show that with advertisements, but you know, as your phone is doing that all the time, you know. Yeah. And uh, the constant like facial recognition, retina scan. Like I, I remember the first iPhone that did like the retinal scan joint. And now they do your yeah. face all the time. That's what that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and we look at it as convenience. And then last but not least, you know, you have those animal like dr- drones, the spiders. Like, you know, like yeah. now they have like the, the robot, the robot dogs and everything that they got sticking on people. So there's a lot of stuff in this movie that was was like telling the future for where things would be in 2024. Yeah, that's the part that uh quite quite frankly frightens me. The <laughs> fact that we're talking about a police state um you know this over this overhandedness. I mean like we're literally coming from a period where there was no TSA to now there is a TSA. And when you mm-hmm. go to TSA or a flight rather, uh you got to take off your shoes, your belt, you got to make sure that uh, all of your personal belongings are in little car- carriage pace, your phone, you name it. Everything has to be labeled, clear liquids, the clear bag. We're just talking about merely 
one aspect of how this movie has come into fruition in the real world. That's not me even making uh, any commentary with respect to, um, you know, the whole like John seeking out uh, uh, relief, if you will, um, escapism in his choice. It's through uh, through med medication, mm -hmm. self medication. Mm -hmm. We're talking now. I mean, before uh, individuals wouldn't hesitate to call someone crazy, even though it was dismissive and it wasn't clinical uh, diagnosis of such. Now it's been rephrased as mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so you would you would you could characterize John as going through struggles and his mental health was being affected. Hence, the reason why he and his wife divorced, because she even says it. Yeah, I kept seeing my my dead son. I didn't see my husband. Yeah. Um, and the, and the idea of. You know, another thing, and you just touched on it, was the idea of like recreational drug use, right? And mm -hmm. the, and the, the one of the um the I, I call her the plant lady, so the the killer plant lady, yeah, and she yeah, talks yeah. about like how the precogs are actually the children of people that were hooked on a stronger version mm -hmm. of the drug that Tom Cruise's character John Addington is using. And then she yeah. also says, like, the idea of how now the drug is used by, like, the more intellectual people. So even, like, the idea of recreational drug use is present. And now, you know, modern-day America, you have dispensaries. You know, it used to be, like, marijuana was, you know, considered the gateway drug to death. But now yeah. there's dispensaries on every block and every corner. So even that was something that the movie predicted. Well, that's the whole aspect of how the government is so heavy-handed. They were able to tax the drugs. So that's what really prevented anyone from, you know, having legalization of marijuana in this instance. But even before then, um, if you go back to the movie Scarface, which touches upon this in the real world, oh, a uh, we're looking at Griselda Blanca um, and, the you know, Miami was very heavy into cocaine and that was a party drug. Mm -hmm. And it was for the upper echelon, the rich, the one percent. Um, Fast forward to the late 80s, early 90s, and you got crack, which is nothing more than a cheaper version of it mm -hmm. with more harsh, excuse me, with uh, stiffer and harsher penalties. Yep. Um, and also the racial component doesn't uh, really help things too. And then fast forward to that, and now you have the opioid, quote unquote, epidemic or crisis. Mm -hmm. And they weren't saying that about crack. They weren't saying that about uh, marijuana. In fact, if you go back even further, when they did make... Uh, cannibal uh cannabism excuse me cannibal um why am i saying cannabis, <laughs> cannabis. cannabis. I, I guess cannabis i think i'm thinking of uh, hannibal Lecter. yeah you were <laughs> but uh when they're thinking about cannabis um the fact that they made it such a, an, a federal offense to even have possession of it was merely because of the so-called stereotype that black people became super empowered by it and thus the reason why they had to criminalize yeah. it and um Another thing, too, with the same thing with cocaine, um, you're talking about, you know, these individuals that uh, Dr. Freud, it's in Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. everybody was using it. And then all of a sudden it becomes criminalized. Why? Because it was believed that blacks had superhuman strength once they were on it. Yeah. And that's not true. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that, that's, not, that's not true. <laughs> but... You know what's funny is like I was when you when you mentioned the part about because like okay so the, some part of this is the idea of the society at large and this is like twenty forty six you know this is the, the yeah. not so distant future now from where we are but there's like this idea that people are now relying on these precogs precognitive individuals to help them identify crimes. What's interesting is that they're they from the beginning they say well okay we can 
catch premeditated crimes and we can catch crimes of passion. We can't catch rapes. Mm -hmm. So they said you can't catch rapes. So rapes mm -hmm. still happen. Rapes still a crime. And then also when you talked about everything about the, the crack and cocaine, they also didn't say anything about drug overdoses. And they also can't catch no. suicides. So they can't. So there's like still like limitations to it, which I actually I actually like that. I feel like Steven Spielberg and and the, the team of people he brought in to develop this movie really thought about the architecture of the world they were creating and tried mm -hmm. to make the idea of precognition as scientific as possible. Well, see, that's the part where I have a, a, a quasi issue with because you're literally talking about um, that one component where John becomes a true believer and is recruited merely because his son is kidnapped. So he's abducted. They can't foresee that mm -hmm. either. So that I have a problem with uh, their main source, inspiration, lead, the face of the unit, the leader. He becomes one of their most uh, devout individuals. And notice I am using the mm -hmm. word devout um, based upon a crime happening to him. And even when Daniel, Colin Farrell's character, and, and, and thus another biblical reference, um, the, in the he says, you know, look, I'm, I'm I'm a true believer in all this, and his motives are selfish. He wants to yeah. take over, hence Allah, Cain, and Abel. Um, so you got a lot of parallels there with their inspirations, uh, the reasons why, the genesis of how this started, um, you know, and then the human aspect of jealousy, envy. Uh, you know, Max's character uh, Lamar, he's very adamant. He's coming out of retirement. Why? Because he sees a golden mm -hmm. opportunity because his uh, son, if you will, has failed him. And now he's come to reclaim what was right, what he deems is rightfully yeah. his. Yeah. And, and you mentioned when you said like the genesis of it, I mean, you, you kind of can't help but talk about the biblical kind of overtones to it. Obviously, like there's mm -hmm. three pro there's three precogs and that's an allusion to mm -hmm. the Holy Trinity. The room that they're in is called the temple. The cops see themselves right. as priests. Um, you know, um, mm -hmm. Colin Farrell's character, Danny, you know, always kisses the cross before he does anything, yeah. like including have a fist fight, which mm -hmm. is, I don't even know why I did that there. Cause when do you have <laughs> right, time in a to real do that fight, in a real fight. No, they do in here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk happen. about that in my, in my later on in here, but you know, yeah, it's, it's very much in there. And there's also, whenever you're dealing with the idea of predetermination, it's always going to be juxtaposed against free will. And then that always juxtaposes it with, or with the idea yeah. of free will and free choice and what God allows people right. to have. Yeah, you know, and that's the uh, interesting thing when we talk about what is permitted. So in this society, it's permissible to commit all these other crimes. It's permissible to, you know, literally John's jumping from his car to another car to another. That's, mm -hmm. they, you know, they're going through other people's homes, like all these things, uh, you know, that's whatever. Even with the police, you know, literally, they don't have a warrant. They just start searching people to see who's inside this particular apartment and, you know, mm -hmm. invasion of privacy, you know, there's no Miranda rights, you know, there's no probable cause, you know, children are being uh, retinal scanned people in the midst of having intercourse uh, arguments. Like it's so, it's just so funny how even in that one scene where the wife and the husband are arguing, they stop, they stop mid, when the mid argument just to get scared uh, and it's always like this is a daily occurrence. Mm -hmm. So how much 
that leads to the question then of how much are we willing to uh, sacrifice or give or willingly give up uh, our rights and freedoms in the name of security, stability, and peace? Well, I think that's an underlying theme in the movie is the idea of do you give up your choice to be free or to even define what freedom is for yourself in a world where you're allowing um, the potential future to dictate how your life is going to go. And, and the idea of like the, the police state, because you're you know, like these people in the, in the modern, in the future, in this, they're constantly under surveillance. Every Mm -hmm. time they get on the Metro, get off it, their eyes are being scanned, which is why you can't really hide or go anywhere. And like you said, the idea of those little invasive spider things, which are terrifying, going in people's houses and scanning their eyes like just like you said people treat that as if it's a as if it's a regular occurrence what's interesting about that scene is that it happens in an environment that seems to suggest that people were of a lower income yeah and they don't they never really show that happen in like a quote unquote nice area in dc mm-hmm. so yeah. it's almost like it happens in a slum so there's still like this idea of there's a certain level of treatment that can be that can be levied upon a certain economic social class of people. Well, that's the funny thing too. You mentioned about the subway and there's no jump in the turnstiles in that joint, man. Like you do that. They know they're going to get you. And that, and that speaks to, you know, the social economic uh, divisions between the haves and the have nots, which is also funny because these themes are really uh, part of the source material, which is the scientific novella by, uh, uh, Philip K. Dix back in 1956, where he was writing about instead of uh, precogs being, you know, telepaths, uh, he's talking about mutants. So you got three mutants and they're able to see into the future. Um, still the same police state, still called the pre-crime division where they're arresting suspects prior to them actually committing a crime, which mm-hmm. uh, we'll get to later. Um and you still have the same individual named John Adderton, who's the head of the police and uh, the police department or that specific division and him being uh, charged, if you will, uh, for a crime he hasn't commit and him attempting to solve that mystery. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's what I was trying to figure out is, is the department of pre-crime, is it actually the police? I was trying well, to, yeah, I, I was trying to figure I out because, it is. because they're not, they're not called the police. They're called the department of pre-crime, which mm-hmm. department usually means that it's a part of the federal system or the government mm-hmm. system. But like it, like in you know DC, you don't have like the department of police, you have the police department, but you'll have the mm-hmm. department of state or the department yeah. of labor. So it seems like it's an agency, but it also, because it's the creation of two citizens, it's also like a private company in a, in its own sense as well. So it's it's well, it's interesting this idea of like the private company creates this system and technology. The government wants to get it and utilize it, and the people are kind of just left blowing in the wind. Well, that's the funny part. I mean, you got you got like so many things going on here. So you have the privatization of things that were first in the governmental aspect of, of how they started and being implemented, mm-hmm. which is basically what happens in the real world, which is why this movie is telling on itself. You know, the government gets this technology first, they utilize it for X amount of years, then you'll see a commercial. The commercial is now presented to the public like, hey, this is what's going on, yada, yada, yada. 
Same thing happens into the military. You got like these special forces, Delta, SEALs team, Green Berets. All of a sudden, their you know contract ends. They're either honorably or dishonorably discharged. They go into the you know the public center where they're privatized uh, corporate agencies going across the world. Hence, another movie we talked about early in the season. Um, and then you know this movie itself also talks about you know this uh, authoritarian. Uh, authoritarian system based upon Cold War themes. Um, all of a sudden, you're also contrasting and comparing that with the anxieties that that produced, and you're dealing with potential individual autonomy. You're talking about, you know, the knowledge of future events and what do you do with that knowledge? Uh, is it dangerous to even have it or contemplate that? That even goes into a whole series of other movies, like um, the movie with. Uh, uh, what's his name? Ben Affleck. And uh, who's the guy that played the uh, Two-Face in... Uh, oh, Tommy uh, Lee. Tommy Lee. Uh... No, no, no. Not him. The other one. Um, blonde-haired guy in... Heath uh, Ledger. No, that was the Joker. Oh, dang. That was the... Either with the... Uh, oh. But the guy... Yeah, no, Aaron Eckhart. Aaron Eckhart. There you go. Thank you. And the reason why I bring that up is in this movie, it echoes those same themes. We're talking about the choice that individuals makes. So Agatha tells uh, John, hey, you have a choice, mm -hmm. again, more biblical names, when he has the knowledge of what is inevitably going to happen, yeah. or at least so they so they see. Yeah, I mean, that the, the yeah, the idea of the choice that that's running all through the movie. And it's kind of like, you know, choice versus versus uh, destiny, which is always which is yeah. like a, you know, you said in the very beginning, that's like a, a struggle that mankind has wrestled with for a long time and it, this is one movie that's kind of playing that that drama out but you mentioned one of the, the precogs agatha and the the precogs are named agatha arthur and da dashel right yeah. and i know yep. that you have a you have like a, a reference points for that so can you just share what those are real quick so everybody can know yeah, what so you know this <laughs> Uh, this well that's a, an interesting point i love the way you phrase that because that's what this movie is about knowing what everybody else knows because uh everybody only has pieces and bits of uh the, the the pie um no one has the entirety of everything going on but with respect to that you know you got agatha agatha christie mm. the writer of many uh uh crime yeah, murder mysteries yep, that yep. Ilk. murder yep then you got uh uh of course arthur sir arthur conan doyle sherlock holmes another famous Got author yes. um, of, of those things. But the last one is a tricky one. Um, and I actually had to do some research on that because at first I was thinking L is always meaning like God. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not in this case, the gentleman's name, ironically enough, is Samuel, mm. another mm -hmm. L, Dashiell Hammett. And he is also an author, uh, another American author who created characters like uh sam spade in the maltese Falcon, detective, yeah. famous detective story uh, yeah nick and nora charles that's in the thin man uh the continental op that's the red harvest and the dane curse and then of course the uh, comic book uh strip character secret agent x-9 so uh you know throughout this movie these three individuals are very pivotal as far as like uh disclosing where what when and how um, Agatha is the most powerful of the mm -hmm. three. The two brothers are twins. Um, and the funny part about that too is there, this is the first Steven Spielberg movie that later became a TV mm -hmm. show. And that TV show starred, uh, Megan Good 
as the detective and Dash Dashel is uh, uh, now on his own and he's uh, trying to make amends and help her out um, solve these crimes. But there's still individuals out there in the real world, quote unquote, real world uh, that want to utilize the precogs and go back the way to that it was. using them to solve. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting that that later became a TV show for. About yeah. Before a year. I got. Yeah. I saw I read that, too, before I got a. Uh... Yeah. Before they pulled the yeah. plug on it, I would say the last the last thing that I thought was was you a, a last one more reference point was the idea of numbers and perspective because there's a big thing made yeah. out of the number nine and six, and you know nine and six mm-hmm. are basically depending on where you set them up from a different perspective, it looks like that. So if I'm sit sitting across the table from you, I could draw a nine. It looks Mirror. like a nine to me. It looks like a six to you, and well, that's, that's funny that you say that too, because uh, if you're dealing with numerology, the six and nine is the sign for mm-hmm. cancer. And they're supposed to be very empathetic, intuitive, and hence you have the precogs being very empathetic, intuitive, wanting you to see. And that's another thing Agatha always Can telling John, Can you don't see? you see? Mm-hmm. Can't you see? Can you see? So, you know, you're you touching upon those those numbers of six and nine are very yeah. significant. And it's it's uh it also is kind of like referencing the idea that what you're seeing isn't necessarily the whole picture, but what you're seeing is like a mm-hmm. certain perspective based on your vantage point, which is also kind of all Correct. layered through this, this, uh, this movie experiment. And this talking about free, uh, was it free will and how does that work out? So, yeah, so that, that's that, uh, we've, we've talked about a couple of things in the movie that we've talked about the movie in general, but, in terms of like the scenes and things that we stood out that we liked, um, there's a couple of things that I really, I really, really dug about this movie. I referenced one of them before. I like the, I mm-hmm. like that they really were thoughtful about the architecture of how the precognition thing mm. works, right? So they show you like yeah. the precogs and they got to lay in like that bath and the pictures and they got the wires all on their head and. I like that the little ball gets the land, the numbers on it and it rolls down the thing and it can, it's kind of elaborate, but it's mm-hmm. like, it, I, th- I like that they thought it out. And I like that they made rules when they didn't have to, because the rule, the rules mm-hmm. and the limitations are what makes it seem like it's real. Cause it'd be very easy to say, nah, this is crazy. And it is in some ways crazy, but the yeah. more structure you put around it, the more it seems to make sense like that. So that was one of the things that I, I really liked about it. The other thing that I really liked is I like that everybody that John knows is essentially a dirtbag. They're all dirt. <laughs> Let's just run it down real quick in case, you know, for people who have seen it, right? So first, you got the guy that I'm going to affectionately refer to as the eye doctor, who's definitely a dirtbag, right? Who was in jail for something else before he started being somebody who does eyeball replacement, which that sounds sketchy. Then he's got the shout out to Peter Stormare and CJ's referencing Doctor Solomon P. Yes, uh, Eddie. So him. <laughs> then you got the then you got the video guy who acknowledge who like admits that he's having inappropriate thoughts about his own cousin. So he's a complete dirtbag too. These are John's crew. <laughs> this is who John rolls with. Then he's got you know the killer plant lady. Who everything that she makes is like a violent plant that he has to go to for advice, and then his man's his real man's Lamar, who's like the guy who created the whole business model for the for this thing. 
He's a complete, he's like, you know, no spoiler alert. He's like the most super thugged out dude in the whole movie. He's like, he's like ghost from power. Like he's, he wears a suit and then, then he's like, oh, I gotta go out and do, do business. So let me put the gun, I take the gun out. He becomes like a mult, like a serial killer in the last 30 minutes of this movie. Well, we, we, we'll get to that. But the point is, is that regardless of those are the cake, that's the things that I, things that I really liked about it. What, what, what is some of the okay. things that you really dug? So CJ mentioned uh, Lois Smith, who plays Dr. Iris Henneman. Um, I got to say, she is a, a very unique character because in one breath, she sounds very uh, intelligent and educated and learned mm-hmm. and smart. So she, you would think she'd be able to rationalize that, hey, killing people is bad. Imprisoning people before they've actually done something is bad. Um you know, the list goes on and on and on about the things that are good, that are clear cut, distinct. You know, this is wrong. This is good. But no, she blurs the line because she willingly creates these. Uh, and now you're talking about hybrids mm-hmm. and genetic splicing, something they talk about in school, you know, with the little B and the big B's and, you know, the probability of whatever have you. Um, but I digress. I find that the give and take of the good versus the bad hence all the characters and the casting I really liked. Um, CJ found it uh, very amusing, but I found it to be one of the strong points of the movie. Um, obviously, John Cru- uh, Tom Cruise as John, um, almost the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have more water um, in this. CJ mentioned the bathtub, and they do explain what is the consistency and mm-hmm. what it's composed of, et cetera, et cetera, and how it's conducive for them to amplify their uh, precog, uh, you know, telepathy, et cetera, their professor, et cetera. Their professor Xavier. Um, and I found that unique. That's, that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> I, found, I found that. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> I found that very, very powerful. The fact that, uh, you know, you got John literally uh, constantly running away from his problems and running mm-hmm. towards solving them running from his destiny and then running into his destiny. So just the fact of John being a strong character, um, I found that very powerful. And if you have any inkling about the Bible or studied it or have a little bit of knowledge, you'll know that John the Baptist knew that he was going to die prematurely, but that didn't stop him from continuing on his doing his work. Um, Yeah. And then plus it's played by, he's played by Tom Cruise. And I think Tom Cruise has something, in his contract that says he's got to run oh, yeah. Yeah, in every run. movie that he's in. So like they got to find a way, they got to find a way for him to run it, deal quick, a quick 50 yard dash at some point in a movie. No question. No question. Um, another thing that I definitely liked about this movie is the concepts. Um, and we've touched upon them. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the, the overall concepts and how they blend and lend themselves to driving this narrative of self-discovery um, choice versus uh, predetermination. I found that very, uh, very intriguing. Um, life, death, consequences, repercussions, uh, how one can be so devoted to their child um, and, and how you wear your heart on your sleeve as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that shocking notion of like discovering that your child is gone and not necessarily abducted, but just in the sense of that loss of innocence. You know, mm-hmm. your kids are little, they love you. Mm-hmm. you. They hang on to your every word. Then as they grow and develop their own sense of self, uh, they kind of like navigate towards their friends. And it's like the blind leading the blind, which leads to my last point. 
Um, John was blind and now he can see mm. the ending does it for me. I really feel that the, the mm. ending sticks itself where he even comments to Lamar, you knew that the one thing that would get me over the edge was the memory of my dead son. Yep. And that was, you know, him playing on his heartstrings. So, Absolutely. you know, CJ calls him a, a scumbag, but he is a master manipulator and rightfully so, because he gives this very heart wrenching speech towards the end about how at the closing of the civil war, yeah. the generals mm -hmm. were given, you know, this gun with gold bullets, hence, you know, the contrast of silver bullets for vampires. And then the stunning reveal that, you know, no, you are the culprit. You're the mastermind. You're a serial killer. You're a sociopath and a psychopath. You know, you're the worst. Yeah. And his wife is stunned by this because she's the one who's like, how could this be? Yeah, My she, passes, she passes out, right? When, he, when she sees it. Yeah. yeah, she faints. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so I, I, you know, it's funny about um, until you told me about the fact that this comes from a, pre, a story from back in the day and that the mm -hmm. character's name is still John, I actually thought that the reason why they named the police officer John was an allusion to John Walsh, who remember mm. had the son Adam Walsh, who yeah. was kidnapped and killed and everything. America's Most Wanted. Right, who started America's Most Wanted. And the idea of like how the event of losing his son was what drove him to his life of like dedicating his life to making sure that didn't happen to anyone else. So I actually thought that that was the reference point when they, when, you know, Tom Cruise's character name is John. And then when he told me everything, I said, okay, cool. So it predates that. But yeah, I think the, the idea of like Tom Cruise as a character who, because of his tragedy, you know, is trying to prevent that from happening and the way that Lamar manipulates that it, it's both of those things are, are flowing really well. So I, I like those things. I still think Lamar was a scumbag, but you know, Cool. He's a, I think it's a question of doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the mere fact that they're literally taking children, yeah. creating orphans. Um, and then in Agatha's case, her mom cleans herself up, mm -hmm. goes to get her daughter back and Lamar kills her. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the fact too, that, you know, you got these people where you mentioned this in the pre-production uh, meeting. Hey, they these cops could go up to them and say, you know, look, we know what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. We've seen this future. Mm -hmm. Do you really want to continue on this path? This is what lies in store for you. And then all of a sudden, you know, you could avoid recidivism because this is a stark, very uh, up close and personal mention. Like, here's the footage. Yeah. We recorded this. Yeah. Well, well, the other thing is that there's a there's a sense in the movie that people either because they might do something or because they are from a so certain socioeconomic level that they can be treated as less than a human and given a less than human experience. Mm. And even Lamar, like the way that he treats, the, you know, he obviously kills um, Agatha's mother, but it's because her mother was a drug addict and she feel he feels like she doesn't deserve to have this person anyway. Mm -hmm. So he has this real superiority godlike complex, right? And it plays out through his behaviors, which it always it all makes sense when you get to the end. So yes, I get that. And I and and in that sense, I think the ending actually makes sense. However, how mm -hmm. some ever, as I as I <laughs> as I go into the things I didn't like that much, um, the first like that first capture scene. Where they have John in the alleyway, it's like twelve dudes and him, 
in like like mm-hmm. 14 feet of space and he gets around him it just it's it's one of the worst choreographed scenes i've ever seen of a fight where like everybody's like okay you go then i'll go slower than you did then i will try to hit him slower than you tried to hit him it's ridiculous it's a terrible scene <laughs> And I'm watching it and I'm thinking like, yo, I know Tom Cruise gets busy. Like he gets down. Like this movie is yeah. like in the same time as Mission Impossible 2, which was like my favorite yep. John Notice dude can like do flip kicks and everything. Show me some of that. Like I was like, I was watching, I'm thinking, is he injured? Like, why is it so slow? Anyway, I hate that fight scene. And then the fight scene with him and Colin Farrell, like that's a terrible fight. They, do, they look like they're wearing pillows on their hands when they punch each other. It doesn't, there's no... There's no risk of harm to either of them. Like, like I'm watching it. Like, come on, dog. They just y'all should just thumb wrestle for what you're doing right now, because because they're not they're not really trying to fight hard. So I didn't like I didn't like those two things. And then my last thing, which was the first thing I mentioned on the ending, I I just felt like this movie, if it would have ended, like let's let's say that. Okay, the guy, the crow, actually is the person who kidnapped and murdered his son. And he gets there and he decides not to not to murder him or not to kill him. And then he arrests him. I would have loved that as an ending. I would have gotten like closure. Mm. I think it would have challenged the veracity of the precognition system. It would have raised the questions that, that you raised before about um, you know, if you give people the choice and if you show them what their path is, do they have the ability to change mm-hmm. it? You know, it would it would have just opened those same doors. And I think it would have still ended the movie in pretty much the same place. But then it just went on for another 36 minutes. And I had to find out that Lamar is like <laughs> a, one of the most vicious human beings of all time. And then like, you know, I got... You got John's <laughs> ex-wife with the eyeball thing. This is this is all kinds of stuff mm. happening that I was like they could have pulled the plug in it. So that's my things on the hate side. Well, you do raise some good points with regards to the ex-wife. They do tend he John and his ex-wife do still have a, a very mm-hmm. amicable uh, relationship. Um, so you know the cynicism in me is like. Man, would an ex-wife really come break you out of prison, <laughs> use your eyeballs after she divorced you, said that you reminded her too much of your deceased son? She's not quick to blame you. She says it's not your fault that your son disappeared. Um, you you do she does mention that he he bust his gun inside the house and you know she regrets saying that. Like, wow, man. That's that's dope. Yeah. yeah. I that's it's far fetched, yeah, but man. hey, props yeah, to you. Um, I had a problem with uh, Wally's character. I mean, I mean, if we're just talking about like me nitpicking here, um, uh, Daniel London plays Wally, the caretaker of the trio. Oh yeah, Trinidad, he's a weird dude. The, uh, the, <laughs> yeah, um, I said Trinidad. Trinity. I mean uh, the Trinity. triad. Yeah, the Trinity or the triad. Um, I just I found him too. He was, he was, I can't say the word I want to say. Let's just say essay or grape. He was grapeish. Like he was very skeevy with the way that he was dealing with Agatha, especially with her being unconscious. It just felt like really, it felt nasty. It it felt felt like it was was swarmy. Yeah. It was a swarmy thing. Yeah. 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 I can't really put the the correct uh, adjective to it, but it's just very Mm -hmm. unsettling. And I'm being very modest with it. Um, 
But going back to uh, one more dislike that I had, and really I don't, I'm just really nitpicking, is the fact that this program goes on for years and it's only run in D.C. Um, so you got, you know, child kidnapping, abductions in D.C. I mean, what does it say for the state of the nation's capital in the year 2056? The same it does like, name, probably. But... I don't know. <laughs> it's just a very mm-hmm. unsettling. And, you know... The fact that the movie is two hours and 25 minutes to CJ's point, um, there are some scenes that were just filler. Um, probably could have shaved that down, you know, but I do understand why they're there. And I do understand the fact that, uh, you know, certain characters, veteran actors, um, you know, you wanted to give them some shine, you know, so you're talking about, you know, Neil McDonough, um, Steve, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Steve... I can't think of his last name right now. Oh, Steve Harris. Steve Harris. So at the time during that era, you know, early 2000s, these guys were, you know, very credible. Um, Even the guy that Tom Cruise beats up, I can't think of his name right now. He usually plays all the creepy guys. He was like the villain in that one movie in which John Claude Van Damme is in prison. This guy's a character actor. He usually plays a lot of Mm -hmm. violent thug scenes. Um, um, You know, so a lot of these guys you can see are recognized by face. Even... um, What's the mom's name from Friday? Uh, I can't think of her name right now. Yeah, um, um, I'm not. Uh, I, I, she was in it. She's, she's like the secretary. I can't think of her name right now. I want to say Thelma for some reason. She was in yeah, I, Seven. I think I think the other thing is like, like, you know, the reality is that if you get Steven Spielberg as a director, he's not going to do an hour and 30 minute movie. Like, he's you know, you don't bring no, Steven no, Spielberg no, in never. for that. You don't actually bring Tom Cruise in for it either. And this movie was a this was a summer blockbuster. So in that vein it's gonna it was yeah. gonna be long you know people feel like summertime's hot you want to go sit in a nice cool movie theater yeah we're gonna get you Air two condition. hours of it yeah. you know with the all the concessions sticking to the floor hence sticky floors shout outs to the to the podcast and shout uh out. yeah that's how that goes so you mentioned oh you got some more oh anna marie okay anna marie Horsford okay. is her name. anything else on the anything else that you didn't like no, not really. You know, like I said, I was just nitpicking here, spitballing. You know, some of the things I could have done better. Okay. But yeah. all right, so I got some questions for you now. I I will say that I feel like we could do a whole show on questioning the mechanics of how this precognition thing actually works. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. I imagine yeah. that at some point we would need to like draw, like we like diagram art or something, and I, I don't want to get into all that. <laughs> it's a lot of holes in this joint to me, but I'm gonna I'm gonna level down to these three questions that I got for you. So the first one, it kind of gets into the precognition part. All right. So once John knows that he's like 15 hours or whatever away from killing somebody, why doesn't he just lock himself mm. in a room <laughs> with no windows and hide out until after the time is up? And then just go down to the station and be like, hey, y'all, I didn't do it. I guess this doesn't work. Well, other than the obvious, which is uh, the movie would end right then and there and we wouldn't really have plot armor. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 as we both recognize, it's a plot device. Um, you know, you got this guy mm-hmm. who is supposed to be able to overcome any and all obstacles. Um, you know, he div- he just totally dives into his work. So if he is the poster boy for this program, he can't say, hey, there are flaws. These are the obvious flaws. No, he told Lamar, 
they're not taking this from us. This is our program, meaning they, the FBI, hence why Daniel Mm -hmm. was there. So in totality, I'm going to say that, you know, he's not going to do that. He's like most human beings going to say, you know, look, I'm the master of my destiny. I can control my fate. I'm going to beat this just out of pure arrogance and, you know, naivete, if you will, if you want to be nice. I got it. Yeah. At the point where the, 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 the strategy was cut out my own eyeballs, break into my own job, melt my face, kidnap a precognitive girl, stripper mind in the, from a dude that runs a, a, what might be an illegal video game joint. Oh, you're talking about, yeah, I probably would have just, I probably would have just hit in the bill, hit in the closet and just right, wrote out, but that's me though. That's me. Everybody don't have to do it. You're talking way. about Rufus right. Riley. That's the guy who the yeah. character's name played by Jason Antoon. Yeah. yeah. A scumbag in the movie. All right. <laughs> so let's, th- so here's my next question. Okay. At, at some point, like why, why does John's eyes still continue to open doors in these facilities after he's a known criminal and even after he's been captured, you know, and, and when you brought this up at first, I was like, well, you know, but then I was like, dumbfounded. Like, yeah, when you are fired (laughs) from a job, they don't allow you access to your computer anymore. (laughs) They take away your card key. Even the cops, your your gun and your badge. Like they tell you off the rip, like, nah, it's a, it's a wrap for you, buddy. And, this dude's eyeball is still, still opening working. up doors for him, man. I couldn't. How is that possible? It's not. Who did? Who? Did, who forgot to take him out of the system? Look, I've been at jobs where when they're firing you, you if you don't know, they they you go back to your. This is back in the day. You go back to your desk. Your mouse was gone. Mm-hmm. And you know, like if your mouse has gone and you got a desktop, there's like no way for you to figure out how to do anything anymore. Dude, you get that because escort. you need the mouse to access the files, yeah. right? They walk you over the box. You, right, you go to your box. desk. Yeah. It's a box. <laughs> the box is there for you. The paper box. And you got to put your stuff in. And they watch you put yeah. your stuff in. And, and they you can't walk come you back either. All, no. And they take all your stuff. So the fact that Tom Cruise, the eyeball still open the doors, that somebody, the, the, somebody made a mistake. The technology person at the Department of Pre-Crime made a mistake. Understatement. All right. So here's my here's my last question, and this is kind of like a meta question for movies in general. So this this movie deals with like the idea of like the future and mm-hmm. you know what happens in the future and all those kind of things. I don't know that it, it lands the plane as far as that goes, but my question is, what movie best captures how the future works to you? Yeah, when you brought this up, you know the obvious uh, movies about you know time. You're talking about Time Cop, Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Classic, yeah. I mean, you're talking about any of the uh, Terminator uh, movies, um, mm-hmm. but for me, I'm going with Endgame, man. Um, Avengers Endgame, yeah. Wow. And the reason being is it's it's just like uh, David Banner explained, Bruce David Banner, uh, David Bruce Banner explained. When an individual goes back to the past, that has now become their present and their future. And then when you change that, and then you come back to the future. You're now dealing with a different arc, a different branch altogether. So what you thought was going to happen and you just go back to real life and just, you know, instantly add you in the mix. That's not possible. That's not feasible. Yeah. So you feel like Endgame did the best job of explaining yeah, it. Definitely. I used to think I used to think that the Terminator did a great job with it mm-hmm. until Terminator Salvation. Yeah. Like, uh. Until until they got to the point where 
John Connor was older than mm. Kyle Reese was. Yeah. And he felt like he had to save Kyle Reese because if he didn't, he wouldn't be born when he was already born to begin with. It, it just, the paradox just became too crazy. And then, then they just, then they decided to make John Connor Terminator and that made it, it was completely off the rails from that point. All right. Anyway, um, that's my questions. Uh, you got any questions about the movie? Yeah, definitely. But before we get into that, just want to shout out Cameron Diaz and Frank Grillo for being in this movie on the low. Um, I had to really? watch this. Yeah, I had to watch this movie a few times to actually catch them. Um, Cameron Diaz is uh, a passenger on the train when uh, he's trying to get off and everything. It's quick though; mm-hmm. you got to really look for it. And Frank Grillo is in the opening scenes where he's one of the cops when they first mm. come down. And everybody's getting beat up and stuff. Um, so shout mm. out to them being in this. And and on the low, Frank Grillo is in so many movies, man. Um, it's it's surprising. Almost not on Sam yeah, Jackson so I, I, level. So not on Sam Jack level. Yeah. No. No, who? So when you said it, so Cameron Diaz, I'm thinking. As soon as you said that, I thought about Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise in that movie Vanilla Sky, in the car scene, which is like one of the most scary things that could possibly happen to a yeah, man yeah. dating a woman. Oh. I thought about that, and then Frank Grillo. I thought immediately about the Winter Soldier, which, as we talked about earlier, yeah, kind of steals the Minority Part Report idea because you know in that Winter Soldier part, they're basically saying that. They want to turn the shield technology to kill people that might become threats. Yeah, developing the whole algorithm and everything. Yeah, Yeah, man. It's it's interesting stuff, man. Yeah. But see, again, each movie lends itself to the other one where they're building upon these notions of what's going on into the future. So for every Mm -hmm. minority report, you do have an iRobot. For every iRobot, you do have a Terminator. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it gives creative licensing without, you know, not even... And shout out to Tom Cruise and uh, Cameron Diaz being in a third movie together, Night and Day, uh, this, and as CJ referenced, uh, Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky, Um, yeah. So my questions are for you, sir. Uh, Here we go. Is this feasible slash possible? And by it, I'm referring to the technology as well as lending itself to society as a whole. I, I so I, I really like the idea, like I said earlier, I like the idea that they tried to create rules around how the precognition thing works. Mm-hmm. The idea that if it's a premeditated murder, they can see it four days out. If it's a crime of passion, it's like 20 minutes or so. So it's a little bit less because yeah. it's not intentional. So they can't see it. I like that as a rule. I also like the idea of like, you need all three in order to get the pictures. And when yeah. one of them is gone, then there's no one tracking the murder. So I like the fact that they built like that system. I'm willing to accept that within the system that they built, there's sensibilities to it. My question has always been with the ethics of arresting people who haven't done something yet. But the logic for how they get there, that part makes sense. In terms of the feasibility, I would say, you know, right now we live in, we're already in a world where people are constantly putting information about themselves into computers, into systems, into servers. Which are then have then are running all these different calculations, algorithms, outcomes, possibilities based on that data. It's not a foregone conclusion to say that one one sometime twenty years from now, a computer might say Mr. Will is going to do this in this situation based on umpteen hours of data collected from your emails and your text messages and your WhatsApps and your Facebook Mm -hmm. posts. And your YouTube page, like that makes sense. So I think in that sense, the idea of technology 
being able to predict an outcome is feasible. It's possible. It's probably happening now. Probably happening to us right mm-hmm. now. We might be plugged into the matrix and don't even know it. Scary thought. Scary thought. Yo, by by the way, by the way, just as a quick point, if you're like 15 years old and you have not thought about one day having to fight against Terminators, you may want to start thinking about it because this there's so much in this movie that already is here, and there's so much that's already being done. Like the Terminator thing is gonna happen. I know know we joked about it. It's a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. that joint's got everybody, yo, go out tomorrow, just start learning how to just jog a mile. Just learn how to jog a mile, figure out how Dude, to survive you, in the woods, something. Cause I know you've already seen the Rick Ross joint where he's talking about creating water. Yeah. So, you know, all those people <laughs> right. are going to have bunkers. Listen. They're going to stockpile guns. Listen. You know, like, it's a foregone Fig- conclusion. Figure out something, because that, that ju- ju- Terminator 2 Judgment Day is definitely <laughs> that's right around the corner. And movies all I like, know is and movies like iRobot I, and this and Terminator are showing you that's like what's coming. Like don't be oh surprised. Yeah, no, that's my that's what I was saying. That's my fear of the elderly being locked in their homes because they instead of getting a dog, they got a robot as their companion, and then he just says, or it or whatever you want to term it, says, Oh no, you're not going outside. You ain't going outside in no fact, more, right. You're not doing anything anymore. Right. What you gonna do? Uh, what you gonna do when your car drives you to the prison? <laughs> I mean, car. cars are driving themselves right now to, uh, you know, their repossession centers. I mean, you got the Fords doing that right now. I mean, it's bugged out. It's bugged out. It's crazy. My uh, second question for you, sir, is uh, why does Adderton buy a drug named Clarity from a blind man? Yeah, that's fuck. So first, like that quote about the um, in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king. That's mm-hmm. great. That's mm-hmm. I just dig that. And I also didn't always get the fact that the reason why the guy chose to be blind was because it stopped him from being scanned. So you couldn't actually see who he is in the technology world that they were that they were living in. I think the thing with um, John using the drug in general is that. I would say when, in my experience, when you see people that are so concerned with trying to control variables and options, and when you see someone who as an officer is not solving crimes, he's preventing crimes from happening in the first place that would otherwise, that's like the highest level of trying to control things and trying to control outcomes and situations. Usually when someone is like that, they're going to be very tightly wound any, every, anyway, and there's going to be a part of their life that's going to be off the rails to compensate for how rigidly, you know, rigid the mm. rest of their life is. So I think the character is written in a way that he has to have that frailty because he's also like this so plugged into the idea of trying to save everybody in 15 minutes or less kind of thing. I know the movie explains it by saying, well, this is because his son passed away. And that makes sense. But even if you took that dynamic out, you could have written that character with that same issue and it would have made sense to me. I think the clarity mm-hmm. is about him trying to create a situation where he's not in control because mm-hmm. so much of his life he's constantly has to be or feels like he has to be. Yeah, and the irony is not lost upon us that the drug is called clarity, something he's seeking, mm-hmm. sold by a blind man who <laughs> reminds me of the boatman from the river of the Absolutely. sticks. Um and you know it also harkens to this cho- this this theme about choice. Mm-hmm. This gentleman tells Tom Cruise's character that he chooses to be homeless and blind. Hence, like some of these people in the in the quote unquote real world 
who would rather be homeless and they feel that they're free of any possessions, mm-hmm. um, hence yoga, um, why they choose to live the lifestyle that they live. Mm-hmm. Um, my third question and final question that is, is Howard kills his wife's lover in a bathtub. Uh, but then there's another scenario where he kills him on the bed. Um, Anderton hides from the spiders in a bathtub. Uh, he loses his son when he's in the pool, when he's trying to hold his breath for the world record. And then Burgess kills Agatha's mom in an ocean. Um, and that's not even taken in consideration. Um, at the end, the children are on an island mm-hmm. surrounded by water. Mm-hmm. So what is the significance of all that? So this was a really good question. I think that there's two things that are going on here. One is the idea of water as a as a great conductor of spiritual energy and mm. clarity, right? Water, you can see yourself in it. You can also see through it. So it has like that dynamic as a part of it. There's also water in the sense of um, the womb, amniotic fluid, the idea of something being created. So I think like the reason why that keeps coming up is that in those different points that you referenced, water is taking place in a moment where something is being revealed and also in a moment where something is transitioning into a different scale. So the murder that you mentioned in the first one, first scene, that's transitioning the whole different reality for all those people involved. When John is in the water, he comes out, his eyes are different. So now that transitions a whole different reality for him. When you see Lamar killing the lady, her him killing that woman is the beginning of a whole new reality. The, the precogs living on the island with the water around them symbolizes their new reality too. So the water is like the, the telling the audience, the viewing audience, you're about to see a major transition and the creation of something mm. new that you didn't previously see. I like that. I like that. Cool. All right. So let's jump into the popcorn boxes. Um, so this one, I think I, I, I like the movie, you know, obviously that's why, why we're talking about it. Um, I did have some, some concerns about like, the way the ending kind of drug on and some questions about how the precognition works. I'm, I'm making this three and a half boxes. I think it's, it's worth moving. It's a, it's a good watch. Um, but it's not like one of my, it's not one of the favorites that we've covered. So I'm giving it three and a half boxes. I dig it. I'm also going with three and a half boxes, not so much for what it lacks and doesn't present, but because of what it does. Um, found it very intriguing that, you know, the opening scene of Howard's son, and his wife going over his son's project about quoting the Gettysburg Address. That's very significant because you're dealing with the establishment of a uh, utopian society, uh, more perfect union. And then you contrast that with the future in this more idealistic world of there's no crime in a program that is founded in the so-called capital of the United States, uh, approximately what, almost what, 200 years yeah, 200 years into the future from when uh, Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. Um, but at the same token, as CJ and I have highlighted, um, you're also dealing with a lot of flaws as far as the logic and the plausibility of these things happening, the holes, such as why um, you're able to see parts of the future, not all of it, but then the precogs are able to determine about 
premeditated crimes within a certain certain time frame versus uh, crimes of passion. Mm -hmm. They're not able to see things such as uh, uh, abduction and uh, SA or grape. So I'm going with three and a half. So look at that, man. We got we got we got interrelated reliability on the show. That's always a good thing there. Um, All right. So as far as like closing thoughts on it, I think we've we've really touched on it. I mean, this is about the tension between choice and predetermination. And I think mm-hmm. I think the I think the movie is dealing with that, but I think the also the cautionary tale for a viewer is a viewer at that time was do you want to live in a world that works this way? Now that mm. you know we're, you're watching in 2024, you're like, well, what does it mean now that I live in a world that almost works this way? <laughs> so you gotta look at it a little different. But that's kind of like what I think what I think is being shared on this point. Um, you got any closing thoughts on this one? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm going to close with the fact that um, this is about humanity and uh, being a humanitarian and what it means to be humanistic. Um, you know, there's no such thing as perfection and there is such, such thing as perfection. So two things can exist simultaneously and the duality of that is as follows. Um, you're dealing with individuals who strive to be better. Uh, humanity, as far as I, as far as my perception goes, is the only beings or um, or or entities that try to create something that surpasses them. They literally try to give birth to their own replacements. Um, so there's something to be said about that. You know, there's hope. This is the only reason why you have progeny. Um, I don't think we try to bring children into the world if we think that this is going to go to hell in a handbasket. Um, I think that uh, the fact that John. Uh, is encouraged by the fact that he can prevent tragedy befalling another family and thus the division and family being the, the main character here um, in all essence, whether it be the precogs uh, Lamar and Dr. Hines being a family or Agatha and her mom, or as we touched upon John, his deceased son and his ex-wife, or even with the cops themselves, you know, they're all a family in some way and they're all connected and they're all trying to be better. Um, but simultaneously, you know, like they say, like the saying goes, you know, the road to hell was paved with good intentions. And so you have John trying to avoid his future, but instead he's bringing in about the demise of someone. And, you know, that gentleman, Leo Crow, um, his whole thing was about sacrificing for his family. Hey, they promised they'd give me money. Mm-hmm. They promised they'd give me money. If you don't kill me, I won't get the money. Um, so, yeah, I just think that uh, in closing, um, you know, the road to hell is paved with the best of intentions. Um, sometimes we do go about bringing about our own destruction by trying to be so tightly wound and control everything. And as CJ has often told me, if you want to make God laugh, <laughs> tell him about your plan. Your plan. Yeah. So in turn, uh, that's a great segue to the next movie that we're going to bring up. And uh, my choice is uh, I hope that they serve beer yeah. in hell. Um it plays off of the whole heaven hell theme, and it also has a similar uh, line parallel to this movie that I hope you'll enjoy. There it is. So that's what it is. So listen, the Sticky Floors podcast is available wherever you get your podcast, whether that is on Spotify, whether that's Apple Podcasts. We have a YouTube channel now as well, which we recently sure. started. Um, please like, subscribe, and comment. Um, your comments help us to do this better. Peace.